Good morning, Christ Central Church. As Todd said, my name is Matt Mela. I'm the RUF campus minister at Duke. Uh, you guys may not know this, but by simply being a part of Christ Central, you support the work that we do at Duke. So thank you so much. Uh, it's a privilege to get to minister at Duke's campus. Uh, it's also a privilege to get to be with you this morning to preach from God's word. Uh, Christ Central has been going through a series in light of Easter called Living the Resurrection Life. And so we're gonna be looking at Acts chapter 11 to continue that series. So if you have your Bible or your bulletin in front of you, or you can just look on the screen up here, I'll be reading the first 18 verses of Acts chapter 11. So would you hear God's word? Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me now in prayer as we prepare to hear from it? Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you that you have brought us here this morning. As Daniel said earlier, God, you know where each of us are coming from. Uh, God, we may be coming from places of discouragement, places of joy, places of excitement, boredom, confusion. Lord, I pray that you would meet each one of us exactly where we are. God, I pray that you would take my words that are surely going to be imperfect and that you would communicate through your spirit your words to your people, that they would hear in such a way that we would hear from you in such a way that we are different people as a result of meeting with you this morning. God, we need your spirit to do that, and so I pray that he would be at work. And God, would you just use your word to change our hearts and our lives? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I once uh, heard somebody use the illustration that listening to a sermon is kind of like eating a meal. So you eat meals all the time, right? And oftentimes you can't even remember what you just ate the meal before. But it was helpful for that moment, right? It sustained you for that experience, that time you had to make it through. But you can remember, right, sometimes those really good meals, those meals that stand out to you. You remember where you were? You remember what happened? I can still remember June of 2012. I was in Nanjing, China, and we had these handmade noodles that were amazing. 
and they were like $2. It was incredible. It was this meal that I will never forget happening. Well, sermons too, especially if you've been around in church spaces for a while, you've heard lots of them. You've heard perhaps hundreds or thousands of sermons, and maybe they're really helpful for that moment, right? They get you through that moment, or they communicate something for that week that's really important to you, but you can't even remember two weeks later what the passage was about, right? But every once in a while, you might remember that really impactful sermon where God really communicated something deep and meaningful in your life. I can still remember one of those moments. I was serving as an RUF intern at the University of Virginia, and we were sitting at our weekly meeting. I can still remember the room we were in, and our campus minister, a man who I still love and deeply admire and respect, was talking about Christian community. And he was saying that when we are saved by God through faith in Jesus, we are saved into a people. But here's what he said that struck me that I'll never forget. He said, you don't get to pick who else God saves. You don't get to pick who else is in that community of people. But the way that Christian community works is that if you have been saved by God through faith and somebody else has been, they are now part of your family, regardless of whether or not you would have wanted to associate with that person before that moment. In fact, you could even say that one of the most compelling things about the God of the Bible is that he brings together people that would have no business being together otherwise. That we need to wrestle with that fact as we engage in Christian community. And that's exactly what's happening here in Acts chapter 11. These Jewish Christians who have come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah from a Jewish background are having to wrestle with this reality that God is now planning to fully include non-Jewish background Christians or Gentiles into the community of God's people. This is such an important moment in the early church that what Acts chapter 11 actually is, is just a retelling of the events of Acts chapter 10. That's for emphasis. They're trying to hammer home that what's happening here, this full inclusion of the Gentiles, is a huge deal for the understanding of what it means to be the church. And really, the rest of the New Testament is unpacking this reality of what it looks like for these two people to come together as the church. So we're continuing, as I said this morning, the sermon series on living the resurrection life. And that's what it means to live in light of the fact that Jesus was a man who died and now is alive forevermore. What does it mean to live in light of that? Well, what we see from this passage are two things. To live the resurrection life means to recognize and embrace God's control and to participate in his boundary-breaking work. To recognize and embrace God's control and to participate in his boundary-breaking work. I mean, you see God's control all over this passage if you look at it. I mean, Peter, what he's doing is he's telling a, a story of a vision that he had from God. And we'll get more into the details of the vision as we think about our next point. But the main point is that this vision that comes to him as he is praying is what God is doing to prepare him for exactly what is supposed to happen next in his life. And then it turns out, and Peter doesn't know this at the time, that when he's praying, there was another vision that came to another man who was somewhere far away from where Peter was. And that vision said, you need to send people and you need to find this guy, Peter, and he's going to come to you and deliver to you a message. This is happening at the exact same time. And so Peter, as he's being prepared, it says he hears from the Holy Spirit to go with these men without distinction. And at that very moment, as it says in the text, that's not a coincidence, at that very moment, these men arrive looking for Peter to come with them. 
And so Peter goes, and all Peter does is witness and testify to what he's seen Jesus do in his life and in the world, and the Holy Spirit falls on these non-Jewish men so that they become believers in Jesus. God's control is all over this passage. He is orchestrating all the details perfectly to create this watershed moment for the early church. There's something really comforting about God's control, right? I mean, if God is in control, that means we don't have to be. Somebody else is taking it. You could say that the key verse in Acts, all of Acts, is chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus, right before he ascends back to heaven after his resurrection, tells his disciples, Peter and his friends, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the capital city. You will be witnesses in Judea, that region, Samaria, which was their neighboring region, and to the ends of the earth. That is what you will be, is what Jesus says to them. That's a pretty daunting task, right? To be witnesses to Jesus to the ends of the earth. I mean, my job is to witness to a small piece of the earth called Duke University. And that is overwhelming and daunting to me, let alone to the ends of the earth. This is a big task. But what we see happening in this passage is that God is keeping his promises. This moment here that he is orchestrating all the details of is the moment where the gospel begins to go to the ends of the earth. He is in control. He is at work in the world. So what this means for us is we think about our call to be witnesses to what God has done in our lives. He is the one that does the saving. He is the one that does the rescuing and the changing of hearts. Our job is simply to tell people what we've seen God do in our lives and in the world. He is in control. You ever have that moment in the middle of the night where your mind is racing and you're thinking of all the things you should have done or supposed to be doing? Well, I found this helpful habit that has started to happen for me when that happens more often than I would like to admit is to breathe in this this truth from Psalm 21. It says that the Lord who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Here's what this means. God is always at work so we can rest. God never sleeps so we can sleep. The invitation of this passage is to breathe in and out this reality that God is God so we don't have to be. Something comforting about God's control, right? But there's also something hard about it, right? Because if God is in control, that means that we aren't. And when God does things in the world, sometimes there's opposition to it, right? I mean, you see that in this passage. Right at the beginning, the context in which Peter is retelling the events of Acts chapter 10 is that a group of men have come and they are criticizing him. It says they are members of the circumcision party. These would have been believers from a Jewish background that didn't want Gentiles to be incorporated fully without having to change who they were as Gentiles. We'll get more on that again in the next point. But the point being that sometimes as we engage in this world, there is going to be opposition to what God is doing and what he calls us to do. I mean, but look at Peter's argument, right? Look at what he says in verse 17. Peter says, hey guys, I'm not doing this. I'm only doing what God is doing. Who am I to stand in his way? What Peter is doing is he's recognizing and he is inviting others to recognize and embrace God's control in the world. But some people won't like that. 
We shouldn't expect it to be any different than it was for Peter. But I also love how the Bible is honest because the reality is that sometimes we don't like it either, right? It's really hard to embrace the fact that God has the ability and authority to dictate the way that we should live our lives. I mean, do you see Peter's resistance in this passage? I mean, look at verse 8. I mean, the vision comes, and he's supposed to eat all these animals that previously he wasn't supposed to eat. And look at what Peter says. He says, by no means, Lord. I mean, that's like a hard no. It's like, I'm not doing that. There's no way that I'm going to do that. You ever feel any resistance to what God calls you to do? I mean, there's no way I'm going to be kind and gracious to that person over there that I can't stand and who I know can't stand me. I mean, by no means am I going to be generous with my time and my money, especially for people that don't deserve it. I will certainly not think thoughtfully and intentionally about what I consume on Netflix or browse on the internet. Right? We, we resist what God calls us to do. Here's the beauty. God is patient. But here's also the truth. To resist God's control and authority over our lives is to run the risk of standing in God's way. I like what one pastor said, especially in light of thinking about living the resurrection life. He said this. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about what any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. I mean, Jesus' resurrection proves that he has authority and control even over death and suffering, which are the two things that make us feel most out of control in this life. The one who even the winds and the waves obey and death could not hold down is calling you to something. He is dictating your life. And the question for us is, are we going to answer that call? Are we going to recognize and embrace his control and his authority to send us out? That is the discipleship question of everybody's life. Are we going to embrace and recognize his control over the world? Now, how does he use that control? What is it that he calls us to? Well, here's what we see God doing in the world. Here is his work. His work is to break down boundaries. God is at work to break down boundaries. I mean, that's what's happening in this passage. It is this enormous boundary that is coming down between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. It is this huge moment in the life of the church. But as I said, it's complicated. There's opposition, there's tension here. And hovering in the background is this big Old Testament context about being clean or unclean. Now, this is a huge part of what happens in the Bible, and I'm going to try and do it really quickly. So hang with me. We're going to try to do a, a whole bunch of Old Testament background and theology right here. But what I want to start by saying is that the Bible, primarily what it is, is it's a God unveiling himself to us. It's God showing us who he is. You can think of it as a social media profile, except it's actually true and honest to who he is. And what God realizes or reveals about himself in this is he shows us that he is good, that he is morally upright, that he is holy, that he is different, that he is perfect, that he is without error or fault in anything that he does. 
And if we begin to understand ourselves in light of who God is, which incidentally others have said is the only way we can really truly understand ourselves if we are God's creatures, is that we see that we are not by nature those things. I mean, look at the rhythm of our worship service, right? I mean, Daniel had a call to worship that came from God. It's an invitation into the presence of God. And what happens when we come into the presence of God is we realize we are not him. So what do we do next? We confess that we're not who we're supposed to be. We confess that we're not God. Now, relevant to our passage this morning, I think, is one of the ways that most reveals that we are not who we're supposed to be. And that's the way that we treat other people. Now, incidentally enough, I think that non-Christians and Christians can agree on this, right? A lot of the chaos and frustration in the world is the way with which people treat each other, right? So what's happening in this passage is you've got Jews and Gentiles, and they had intense hatred of each other. You could rightly call it racism. They hate one another. So you hear it almost, right? When these Jewish believers, the circumcision party, they come to Peter, they say, you ate and associated with these uncircumcised men? Like, what are you doing? Now, circumcision, of course, was the Old Testament sign given to God's people. So the uncircumcision referred to anybody that wasn't included in that. And what it became was a racial epithet. It became a way to look down upon other people. Now, it's true, in the Old Testament, God did set apart Israel as his chosen people. But what you need to understand is that he did not do that because they were better than anybody else. If you don't believe me, read Deuteronomy chapter 7. Because essentially what God says in there is, I actually chose you not because you're better, but because you are the least of all people. Because what God is showing is that he uses the least of these to impact and change the world. He didn't call them because they were better than anybody else. But what happened is they took their chosen status by God and it turned into a superiority complex for them. They were meant to be a light to the nations, to point the nations to worship of this one true God who called them, to be a blessing to the nations, never to look down upon them. But the human heart took over and started to look down on other people. If you think you don't do this, then you're not being honest with yourself. I mean, you see little kids, right? I mean, they decide that being older and bigger than other kids makes them better than other kids, right? Literally nothing they have control over when they were born and how big they are. It is hardwired into us. As adults, I think we just have more sophisticated ways of doing that, right? Unfortunately, in the church, too, we often can do that. Here's the point. We have a heart problem. We have a problem going on inside of us that what we do is we create these hateful and artificial boundaries between us and other people. And what happens in that is it reveals this wickedness inside of us. But here's what the scripture says. It says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Because God is holy and perfect, he can't dwell with wickedness. There's a boundary between God and evil. And so if we're honest in seeing ourselves rightly, this creates a problem for us, right? So all of the Old Testament laws about being clean or unclean, about sacrifices and all these things, what they were doing were they were demonstrating an outward reality of an inward spiritual problem, an outward expression of a gap that exists between us and God. 
But here's what else they were doing. They were creating a way for God to dwell with wicked people because that's exactly who God wants to be with. He wants to be with us. He's created this system of worship in the Old Testament to answer this question, how can a holy and perfect God interact with a people like the people of Israel? How can a holy God interact with people like us? You see, these regular reminders of being clean or unclean, needing sacrifices, what they were doing was pointing to the people their need for God to intervene to cover that gap. What they were doing was they were preparing the hearts of the people for Jesus. Because that's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate boundary breaker. I mean, the one who is perfect submitted himself to living life in an unclean world. I mean, think about it. When he was born, he was placed in a place where animals were fed so that he could be with us. When he interacted in the world, he hung out with the least of these, the people that society did not want to spend time with because he wanted to communicate that those are the people that he wanted to be with. And what's more is that he submitted himself even to death, which would have been the ultimate uncleanness, so that we could be made clean, so that all who trust in his death and resurrection could take their uncleanness and put it on him, and he would give us his cleanness. Now, one of the main reasons that Jesus was hated when he walked around was because of who he hung out with. I mean, the Pharisees, they mocked him with this title, friend of sinners. Man, is that not my favorite title for Jesus? And would that not be true of us? Could it not be said of all those who follow him that we are friends of sinners? Praise be to Jesus that that's exactly what he is and what he embraces. But here's what's amazing about Jesus is that interacting with unclean people, it didn't make him unclean. He made unclean people clean. A leper touched him and the leper became clean. Tax collectors and sinners, they become children of the living God when they interact with Jesus. And death is done away completely by resurrection and life. You see, the ultimate boundary that God breaks down is the boundary that exists between us and him. And the way he does that is by sending his son to become unclean so that we could become clean through faith in him. But there's even more going on. And this is what this passage shows us because he's not just breaking down the boundaries that exist between us and him. He's breaking down the boundaries that exist between us and other people. So if you recognize and embrace God's authority to commission your life, you must participate in his boundary-breaking work because that is what it means to follow this God who has come. But how often do we resist this? Have you ever looked down on somebody else? I mean, maybe as a Christian, right, a way you can feel better about your performance is by pointing out how you're so much better than other people who are doing things that are worse than you, right? Or perhaps what we end up doing is we add moral imperatives to God's law for what it means to be a true Christian, right? Like you must send your kids to school in a certain place, or you must shop in a certain location, or you must vote exactly how you think someone should vote in order for them to be worth, or worth it or valuable in any way. Do you ever find yourself disgusted by other people? I mean, maybe because of certain things uh, that they can't control, 
racial background, socioeconomic status. You ever look down on somebody because they differ from you politically? What do you make distinctions about? Who do you not want to associate with if you're honest? It might even be that you just find yourself naturally flocking towards personalities that you enjoy more, people that are easier or not so awkward for you to interact with. We are natural boundary makers. We make boundaries on race and ethnicity, around politics, cool or uncool, smart, not as smart, able-bodied and people with disabilities, rich and poor, pretty and ugly, athletic, non-athletic, whatever it is. We are boundary makers, but God is a boundary breaker. He breaks down the boundary between us and him, and he breaks down the boundary between us and other people. But what Peter recognizes is what we need to recognize in order for us to ever participate in this work. That it is God who makes people clean. And who God makes clean, we dare not ever call common. What Peter recognizes are these two key truths at the same time that unify us as God's people. Unify us as all people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are freely offered the rescue of Jesus. To be justified by his blood. To be made right, made clean, made enough before God through faith as a gift given graciously. So as Peter begins to realize that, as we begin to recognize that, the early church and us too can participate in God's boundary-breaking work. The early church started going across lines of difference, any lines of difference that existed. And if we are to participate in God's work, we are called to the same thing. To live the resurrection life is to tear down the boundaries that exist between us as people. Here's how it starts. Did you notice what Peter was doing when he had this vision? He was praying. It starts with prayer. Would you pray that God would give you a heart to move towards the people that you would rather not move towards? Would you pray that God would orchestrate these divine appointments so that you can move across these lines of boundary to show other people the radical love of Jesus. And when he creates those opportunities, would you prayerfully and by faith take those small steps across boundaries towards other people? That's what Peter does. He just goes and he witnesses and testifies to what Jesus has done in his life and in the world. Would we do the same as we participate in God's boundary-breaking work? We are invited to recognize God's control, to embrace it, to recognize that this work of boundary breaking is what he does and he invites us to participate in it. But to also recognize his control that he has the authority to send us where he would send us and actually going when we receive that call. So will you hear and recognize and embrace God's control over your life and in the world? And as you recognize that, will you participate in what he is doing in the world to tear down boundaries, the boundary that exists between us and him and the boundary that exists between us and other people? If we do this as a church, it will begin to ultimately compel people that who is this God who can put these people that have no business being in the same room together, united by him together as the family of God? May it be so. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are in control. 
Lord, I can confess how often I want to be the authority in my own life and how hard it is to recognize that I am not, but I also thank you that I don't have to be, that you call us to big things that are too big for us, but they're not too big for you, and you are a God who keeps your promises. So God, I just pray that you would help us to continue to move towards the work that you are doing to tear down boundaries. I thank you for Jesus who has torn down the boundary between us and you, and I pray, Lord, that in the same power that you would tear down the boundaries that exist between us and the world. And God, I pray as a result that people would be more uh, just in awe as we see the followers in the early church in awe of you and what you have done as a result of it. All for your glory and the good of your people, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.